so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. I I think that's how you explain it. I'm so glad you give me words to help me talk, Brent. What would I do without you? You'd probably live a less stressful life. (laughs) Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me this week is Brent Leatherwood, who was apparently trapped in a time warp last week. Do you want to explain that? I was going to say, I'm actually here this week. And not in next week, which is where I thought I was last week. (laughs) (laughs) That's not confusing at all. (laughs) Well, it all goes back to this. For our uh, end of show segment, The Lunchroom, (laughs) listeners may remember, I was very excited about the coming All-Star Game which I thought was happening this week. That's actually happening next week. <laughs> and I was, you know, just primed with optimism uh, to, to share that experience with my kids. And I still am. So in that sense, uh, being consistent, I just was convinced that by the time you're listening to this, the all-star game already would have occurred. Mm-hmm. So um, does that make me a futurist? I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of talking heads out there on the social medias that, that call themselves futurists, and I don't really even know what that means. Uh, but I choose to live in the here and now. Yeah. Uh, no, because I... we are not promised tomorrow, Lindsay. So, yeah. So, for my lunchroom today. Is it going to be the same thing? Well, just go listen to last Deja week. Vu. Yeah, yeah. Just, just go listen to last week, and you'll know what I'm bringing to the lunchroom. I think that what it means is that you need to take a vacation, some kind of a break where you can reorient yourself to the concept of time. Yes, that, that probably is very true. And uh, what, yes. what week we're actually in. Well, I woke up this morning with some kind of vertigo going on, so I didn't know if I was going to be able to come into the <laughs> office. Seriously, you laugh. Have you ever had vertigo? I I have not had vertigo, no. You would know if you did. Has Meredith? I mean, isn't it just dizziness? Yes, but it's it's like you can't you can't I like I couldn't bend my head forward or to the side or everything would be spinning. Gotcha. No, I mean she she actually has had something like that. Uh it's occurred three times in her life. Okay. <laughs> she didn't tell me more. Oh well, I, I mean fell flat. it ended yes. with our three children. Oh, she was dizzy while she was pregnant? That was the first sign that she knew she was pregnant. Oh, yeah. No, that's not what's happening with me. Oh, okay. I I didn't know if maybe (laughs) we were about to reveal something uh, here on the RLC podcast. No, it is not. No, no, no. Oh, okay. This was actually vertigo. I get it frequently, (laughs) and I thought I was going to be able to come in here, and I was worried because instead of our fearless audio producer, it was up to us to record today, and I know that... You are a futurist when it comes to 
recording equipment or technology in the sense that you live as if you're 80 years old and don't know how to work things. <laughs> so that's great. So anyway, yes. so no, I'm yeah. here. I got here safely and I'm I'm feeling better. So Let's go ahead and jump into our episode for today, and we're going to start with what the ERLC has been talking about. So as you might imagine, we are constantly putting out more material that has to do with uh, the Dobbs decision, the overturning of Roe v. Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood. It's historic. It's important. It is country-shaking. So we want to continue to equip one another to be able, as believers, to be able to give an answer to those that we're talking with to be able to answer questions with grace and truth. So we have an article here by Jordan Wooten, and I love this article. It's titled, How Do Americans View the Issue of Abortion Really? Takeaways from a Recently Published Survey. So there was a survey, combined results from NPR, PBS, NewsHour, Marist, National Poll, preceding the Supreme Court decision of Dobbs, revealing that 64% of Americans oppose the overturn of Roe. So in an age of misinformation, it's important to ask, is this really true? Is this really what the American public thinks? So there's new polling data gathered from a Harvard-Harris poll published in early July, and it answers the question, but it's also more nuanced. So as Jordan goes through this, it, it is true that uh, a majority of Americans were opposed to the overturning of Roe. But if you dig deeper, a majority of Americans are not pro-unfettered access to abortion. Right. So 55% of those polled opposed overturning Roe v. Wade. 49% support an abortion ban after six weeks, and 72% support an abortion ban after 15 weeks. Only 10% of respondents support the Democratic position of allowing abortion up until birth. So that really shows you that the, the talking points that we often see about a majority of Americans being for uh, abortion access at any point in the pregnancy is not true. And likewise, there was a study conducted by the Land Center and Lifeway Christian Research it says, among those polled, 41% favored restrictions after the sixth week of pregnancy, 52 after the 12th, 59 after the 15th, 65% after the 20th, and 69% say that reducing abortions is important. So the point is that, you know, we may be able to meet our neighbors somewhere in the middle, that they they might have more of a concept of life and of a baby's right to life than we might think. And so we can meet them with truth. We can meet them with what God's Word says. We can meet them with the facts of science and all that we are learning, including with the ultrasound machines that we are able to place in crisis pregnancy centers, how they reveal a baby's heartbeat at six weeks. And Jordan encourages us, instead of giving in to the vitriol and the attacking and the wringing our hands because we're fearful over the future of our country and abortion in America, we can make friends with our neighbors and we can discuss these things, honoring our neighbors, respecting them, and by God's grace, winning them over to the truth of what God's Word says about the inherent dignity of all of life. Yeah, th this is a wonderful piece because it specifically looks at this poll, but it takes into account multiple polls and kind of just susses out the truth there and you know, if you just read the headlines, as Jordan points out, you're going to come away with thinking, oh, we're actually more of a, a pro-choice country. And there are activists on that side of the discussion about abortion that like to tout that. 
and they are trying to persuade you to think, oh, what we mean is unlimited access to abortion, uh, the maximalist abortion rights. But when, as Jordan does here, you really start getting under the hood, you, you find most people actually want abortion to be restricted. And we've talked about this before, but other polls have showed that even folks who agree with abortion, they don't see it as something that is good. And, and so we're, what you just left with is exactly right. That means that often we actually can have a conversation about abortion. And I think as Christians who engage in those conversations, uh, we need to make sure that we are having those conversations about the underlying truths that these preborn lives that we want protected by law and, and therefore saved – the reason we are doing that is because we understand that those preborn lives, they represent our neighbors. And Scripture calls us to be on the lookout for our neighbors and, and serve our neighbors. And what better way to serve our neighbors in, in this context than advocating for them, that they may be given the ability to take their first breath and live. And so— uh, this is a great and very helpful piece because these polls are going to keep coming out. I mean, as you said, Dobbs is just the ripple effects of this case are, are just so massive. And in some ways, we don't even know all the various ways that it will play out. These polls that take a snapshot of American life, they're going to keep coming at us. And, and I think having a piece like that to navigate those uh, will be really helpful for our audience. And I was encouraged this morning, I've been reading through The Reason for God by Tim Keller, and I was reading a chapter about justice, and he was talking about slavery and the uh, abolitionist movement and the end of slavery. And thinking back to that, like, it's probably seemed impossible that slavery, which was so ingrained into society, into hearts and minds, and into the economy, it was a very lucrative that it would ever become illegal and unthinkable in the hearts of Americans and worldwide. And it happened by God's power and His grace. It happened. And now race-based slavery is anathema, as it should be, as should all slavery. Traf I'm thinking of trafficking that still exists. But it's anathema. And so, to me, there's hope that something that was so ingrained in the hearts and minds of our culture and in the economy— that our hearts and minds would be changed and our, our legislation would change and all of that, that speaks to me about hope, that we should persevere in our work when it comes to the life of preborn children and vulnerable mothers to where one day abortion will be anathema and it, the life of a preborn baby will not be seen as pitted against a woman's right or a woman's health. And that day can come by God's grace. And of course, that's what we're working toward and that's what we're praying for. But I was encouraged by that this morning. And along the same lines, the next piece is, uh, it's an explainer. It's updated by our coworker, Chelsea Sobolik. And it's about the House is going to vote on a pair of extreme pro-abortion bills. So we're recording this on Thursday. It releases on Friday. And so Friday is the day that the House of Representatives will vote on the Women's Health Protection Act of 2022 and the Ensuring Access to Abortion Act of 2022. And uh, these pieces of legislation, as Chelsea points out, 
as we have repeatedly said, are some of the most pro-abortion bills ever considered by Congress. So the Women's Health Protection Act of 2022 removes all restrictions and limits on abortion and allows for abortion up to the point of birth. Additionally, it removes all pro-life protections at the federal and state levels and eliminates a state's ability to legislate abortion. So extreme, extraordinarily pro-abortion, and it's grievous. The Ensuring Access to Abortion Act of 2022 requires states to allow the purchase and mailing of abortion pills from across state lines. So this is really, abortion pills are the next frontier now that abortion is not legal across all states. So this bill would weaponize interstate commerce protections to prevent states from being able to restrict access to these pills. So again, these are both very pro-abortion, and the ERLC is strongly opposed to them. And Brent, I'll let you talk about more about what's expected to come out of this vote in the House. Right. So uh, the Speaker Pelosi has scheduled these votes for uh, approximately 11.45 a.m., on Friday. And one will feel uh, familiar uh, to our audience, the Women's Health Protection Act. We need to be clear. That is not actually what this is. Uh, As we talk about misinformation. Yes. uh, That is just the name that Democrats in Congress have titled this bill to gloss over the fact that this is the most egregiously pro-choice legislation ever considered by Congress. This isn't just codifying Roe, as if that would not be horrifying enough. This goes far beyond that. This does get into the phrase that you used earlier, unfettered access to abortion. And so this does not need to become law. It has passed the House previously. It it will again. It will get a majority of votes uh, in the House. Uh, Thankfully, it will not pass the Senate uh, in all likelihood. So that is a good thing. And we need to pray for the Senate to hold firm that there will not be 60 votes in the Senate. It it just doesn't appear that it will be able to overcome the filibuster there. The second bill, the ensuring access to abortion, essentially what this is, is it it will provide a federal protection for what we've covered previously, abortion tourism. And this is this weird phenomenon where individuals or companies or even some state lawmakers are saying, hey, we'll we'll basically provide you an abortion scholarship to go to California, visit Disneyland, get your abortion and have a great time and then come on back. And that just as deeply, deeply troubling and enraging <laughs> as that kind of concept is to us. We also need to take a breath and, and realize, like, that's just how the, the depths that our culture has sunk to, that it views the taking and extinguishing of life as something that can just be funded by a company and and just go taken care of as if you're, like, going on this, like, vacation. And, and so it just, it, it means, I, I said this in a, interview this week with Baptist Press, like, that's why it's it's going to be even more important in this post-Roe moment that we find ourselves, that our pastors, our family ministers, our discipleship ministers, our college pastors, uh, small group leaders, our, all of our churches, every aspect of it, it is just going to be so vitally important that we continue to help people understand the realities of the Imago Day, 
and the reality of life itself and how precious it is uh, in the eyes of our Lord. And um, it was important prior to this Dobbs decision coming out. And our churches have done an incredible job of it. It's just taking on even more significance now because we're, we're as we've said previously, we're not, we're, this conversation is no longer just focused in Washington, D.C. at our nation's capital. It's now happening right in our local communities, right in our backyards. And so, yeah, both of these bills scheduled for a vote uh, Friday. We stand in strident opposition to them. We have registered our objections multiple times on Capitol Hill. As a matter of fact, I think we're going to do it again formally. And so, yeah, we will be on top of it for uh, our Southern Baptist Convention. And we will definitely keep you updated about that as well. And then the final piece also has to do with the issue of uh, abortion and Dobbs and Roe. So this one is, selfishly, I asked for this one uh, because I need kind of a Roe for dummies. So this is an explainer by our staff, basically on what was wrong about uh, Roe's jurisprudence, Roe's law. Why was it bad law? And why does the Constitution leave it to legislators and leave it to the states? I know that um, many in the culture say we need a federal right to abortion. It should be nationwide. The overturning of Roe was wrong. So I wanted to be able to answer that to people that I'm talking to. And so we do hope that this will equip you to be able to understand it and to be able to answer it in a helpful way. We continue to cover other topics and subjects, though Life and Dobbs and Roe are just at the top of the list these days with so many questions swirling about. But for now, Brent, that is your look at what's happening at ERLC.com. Moving into our culture section this week, Brent, why don't you let us know what's happening? All right, Lindsay. Well, the probably the biggest thing that people felt this week was the massive report on inflation that landed in the middle of the week. And this first story comes to us from CNBC. Inflation is up a jaw-dropping 9.1%, Lindsay Nicolay. Have you felt that in your wallet? Uh, I think so. I just need somebody, I need somebody to put that in perspective to okay. me to where it would make my jaw drop. And this CNBC story will do that for you. Great. Lindsay. Shoppers paid sharply higher prices for a variety of goods in June as inflation kept its hold on a slowing U.S. economy, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported on Wednesday. The Consumer Price Index, CPI, a broad measure of everyday goods and services related to the cost of living, soared 9.1% from a year ago, above the 8.8% Dow Jones had estimated. That marked the fastest pace for inflation going back to November of 1981. So excluding volatile food and energy prices, uh, so-called core CPI increased 5.9% compared with the 5.7 estimate. Core inflation peaked at 6.5% in March and has been nudging down since. On a monthly basis, headline CPI rose 1.3% and core CPI was up 0.7%. Taken together, the numbers seem to counter the narrative that inflation may be peaking as the gains were based across a variety of categories. This is a quote from the article. CPI delivered another shock and as painful as June's higher number is, equally as bad as the broadening sources of inflation, said Robert Frick, corporate economist at Navy Federal Credit Union. Though CPI spike is led by energy and food prices, which are largely global problems, 
Prices continue to mount for domestic goods and services, from shelter to autos to apparel. The inflation reading could push the Federal Reserve into an even more aggressive position. So what this means is the price that you are paying, uh, particularly for everyday items, are continuing to rise. Now, this report and others have pointed out that over the last couple of weeks, gas prices have started to come down. So uh, I'm, I'm sure wherever uh, audience members are living, they, they may have noticed that. But prices in grocery stores remain higher. Uh, in some cases, like even my wife the other day, she was noticing. She's like, I, I still feel like there are massive holes uh, on the shelves mm-hmm. at stores where things have yes. just not kind of come. And that is a part of the global supply chain problem which all of this is just continuing to be the ripple effects from the COVID shutdowns. And like we were just talking about airlines the other day. The reason that there are a lot of cancellations of flights is because remember in March and April of 2020, the real depths of that that recession caused by COVID when just seemingly everything shut down. A lot of those airlines, they let Pilots go. They let ground crew. They let crew on the planes uh, go. And now the consumers have started flying again, but they don't have a lot of the uh, individuals trained to actually fly that number of consumers. So it, it it is all still the aftershocks of those because we're we're still working out the kinks in all of our supply lines and employment, et cetera. And so now this last line, I think, is particularly interesting. The inflation reading could push the Federal Reserve to an even more aggressive position. So we all have seen it with you know mortgage rates increasing, interest rates increasing. That is the most direct way uh, that the Federal Reserve can kind of push the brakes on inflation by raising interest rates. That also has the effect of kind of pushing the brakes, tapping the brakes on the economy itself overall. You know, so who knows where this leads? There are some indications, as it mentioned, that inflation may be peaking, but we're still getting hit in the wallet or the pocketbook, as it were. Yes. So raising interest rates on anything that you borrow for, that you have payments on, is that what we're saying? Or? You're right. So like... <clears throat> I know mortgage, but... Right. But think about it like this. For, for years now, interest rates have been so low that it hasn't been attractive to save because when you put money like in your savings account, right, you gain interest on that. Well, the interest over the last few years has been like 1% or something. Yeah, I mean yeah. And, I mean it's just gotcha. been so low, it's almost been negligible. In other words, it hasn't been attractive right to save oh, and conserve. Okay. So now they're raising interest rates. Now interest rates are going up. You're actually going to see more benefit from saving right. and conserving your money. Like right. this is just a, an example that makes sense. very personalized. But that's the broader theory at play is like if if we can just get people to slow down a little bit, this economy to slow down just a little bit, people to spend less, that will have the effect of just kind of cooling things uh, just a tad. So, Well, my husband will probably end up thanking you for explaining to me that it will be more advantageous to save now. Oh, is Justin so, a big spender? No, no, no. He he would be uh, oh, like okay. for me to oh, say oh, <laughs> less Chick-fil-A trips. I'm not a big spender, but okay. less Chick-fil-A trips, less Amazon packages. If right. I can see a good return for my money, then yeah, maybe maybe we'll save. We'll see. We'll see. Okay. 
The next story comes to us. It actually happened last week. It was a tragic situation that happened overseas, but it, it occurred after we had recorded. And it was the assassination of the former prime minister of uh, Japan, uh, Shinzo Abe. This comes to us, this first part comes to us from CNN. Crowds gathered to pay their respects to the former prime minister. Family and close friends attended the funeral of former Japanese prime minister Shinzo Abe in Tokyo on Tuesday, with crowds gathering on the streets of the capital to pay their last respects, four days after the shock of his assassination reverberated across the world. Millions around the world have reacted with shock and anguish at how Abe was gunned down in broad daylight during a campaign speech in the central city of Nara on Friday. The brutal nature of Abe's death has left millions reeling across Japan, a country with one of the lowest gun violence rates in the entire world. The next story related to this comes to us from BBC, and it, it really is meant to help those in our audience who, who might not have followed his career over in Japan quite as closely. And so the BBC had a piece, What Abe Meant to Japan, and it says this, But with his death, there is also a growing realization of what Abe gave Japan. First and foremost, that was stability and security. Before Abe returned to power in 2012, Japan had just suffered its biggest trauma since World War II, a massive earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear meltdown at Fukushima. The governing coalition was in chaos. The Japanese economy had still not recovered from its 1992 stock market collapse, and over the previous two decades, Japan had seen 14 prime ministers come and go. One of them lasted just 64 days. Abe swept back into office with a real sense of energy, and most importantly, an economic plan that he conveniently dubbed Abenomics. He declared Japan is back. And he actually served as a ballast, if you will, for the Japanese ship of state. He really did... Uh, he's conservative, should point that out. And things just seem to stabilize overall as a country. And Japan really kind of emerged uh, under his leadership as a more substantial power center uh, in the Pacific uh, region. And uh, why is this important, particularly for Southern Baptists? Well, because he was very clear-eyed about the emerging threat of China, which we have said at this organization, the RLC, that China needs to be countered morally. Well, uh, Shinzo Abe, during his time, uh, did just that. But he understood uniquely, not because Japan is located right next door to China, the national security implications of China's rise. And even more pointedly, he was a loud voice when it came to condemning the Chinese Communist Party's treatment of uh, the Uyghur people in the western provinces of China and their genocide uh, that occurred there. And so his loss is not just a loss for uh, the Japanese people. You know, he's a, he's a former prime minister, but uh, numerous pieces have been written about even though he was out of office, he was still continuing to exert a lot of influence in the Japanese public square and particularly over uh, Japanese policymaking. So it's not just a loss, though, for them uh, domestically in Japan. It's also a global loss because of the unique voice uh, that he provided and particularly as it relates to China. Yeah, I'm sure it is so sad for this country and one that's not accustomed to gun violence. I believe I read that this 
the suspect had, uh, who was detained, had used a homemade weapon. Mm. I think it, it just shows the reality of what's in our hearts, too. Like, legislation is important, but sometimes when we want to sin, we're going to find a way to do it uh, and perpetrate evil. And it's just really tragic and really sad. Uh, such a shock for that country. He, he seemed like a just a stalwart of a leader for Japan. Well, and, you know, just to speak to his political skill, he was able to navigate very complex relationships with President Barack Obama and President Donald Trump and forge strong relationships uh, with both of them. Uh, and, and so that that's why you have seen in the wake of, of his assassination, uh, leaders in the American context from both sides of the aisle praising his legacy and the fact that he was able to work with just two very different uh, administrations. The reality, you know, the kind of the bottom line for this is this once again is a moment for us to condemn political violence. Political violence is unacceptable in, in any context. And it often has tragic consequences. And that's what happened here. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay, Lindsay. And our final story is actually the groundbreaking images from the James Webb Telescope that is hovering high above us, uh, high in orbit in space. And this story comes to us from NPR. The universe's splendor and breadth are on display like never before, thanks to a new batch of images that NASA released from the James Webb Space Telescope on Tuesday. The images from the new telescope are, quote, really gorgeous, said NASA's Jane Rigby, the operations project scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope. That's something that has been true for every image we've gotten with Webb, she added. We can't take blank sky images. Everywhere we look, there are galaxies everywhere. And it went on to, there was a further in the piece, it talks about the initial image that came out, which for those in our audience, it it took a picture of space and it just revealed all these seemingly innumerable galaxies Uh, that are out there. And it said this, if you held a grain of sand on the tip of your finger at arm's length, that is the part of the universe you are seeing. Just one little speck of the universe, NASA Administrator Bill Nelson said on Monday. But that speck contains multitudes. And thanks to the telescope's deep and sharp infrared images, Earthlings are getting a more detailed look at distant galaxies than was ever possible. And I got to tell you, when I read that, I couldn't help but think back to God's conversation with Abraham and about uh, his descendants to come. And then ultimately the fact that one of them that would come from him would in fact be our savior. And so that's where my mind was drawn, but I'm sure Lindsay, you've seen these remarkable images from space and I'm sure you've got some thoughts. Well, they are amazing. It's incredible. One of the verses that... I was thinking of as Psalm 8, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and mm. the son of man that you care for him? The Lord is kind to bless us with technology too, like Romans says, Romans 1, we're, out, we're without excuse. The creation testifies to a creator, to a designer, and it's a gift of God that we get a peek into this. Can you imagine what our forefathers and mothers would have 
thought if they had been able to see these images. They are really incredible. And I was watching the Today Show or something. I always talk about that because it's on. My mom comes over and turns it on. But there's a picture of a bunch of stars and stuff and a, a galaxy. And he, the guy who was explaining it was saying that there are a bunch of like squiggly lines around it. And those are other galaxies so far off that you can't see them. And then the force of this one galaxy is bending them, the light of them toward it. So it's like this squiggly, <laughs> it looks like squiggly lights. So it's, it really is just amazing. However, regardless of how amazing it is, I still do not want to go to space. No. I will bounce around in space in the new heavens and the new earth if we have some kind of flying, teleporting <laughs> capabilities. <laughs> but for now, while I'm just a mere earthling, I, <laughs> a mere mortal, I do not want to try to travel to space. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I'm I, I'm content to to see the pictures that come mm-hmm. from advanced technology and like this this telescope. But uh, you're right. The heavens do declare his glory, and we as Christians uh, just need to be thankful that we get to see such beautiful images. All right, Lindsay, that is your look at This Week in Culture. And now it's time for the lunchroom, where we tell you what we're talking about with each other. So Brent has already told you that he was stuck in a time warp. So his lunchroom from last week is actually this week. The All-Star Game will be coming up. The All-Star Game is coming up on Tuesday, and you need to watch it. Okay. Yes. I won't watch it. But I have listened to two books, and one of them I'm still listening to, and I just wanted to tell you about them real quick because some people recommended them. So this one is called Everything Sad is Untrue. You may have seen some people on the interwebs recommending them, saying they're it's marvelous, et cetera. So I try, it's it's by, uh, he's an adult now, but he wrote it, he was a refugee from Iran. His mom had become a Christian and they came to Oklahoma specifically. And he just tells in a child's voice and in a child's way, the experience of a refugee. It is completely random storytelling. He weaves it together and says some, I want to say poignant, but I realize that I've been using the word poignant wrong for my entire life. So poignant is not the right word. He says some powerful things there, especially about his reflections on being a Christian and being willing to suffer for being a Christian. So it was a good book. I would recommend listening to it rather than reading it because it is such a different style for me. So if you're interested in a refugee's experience, I would recommend that. And then the second one I'm listening to is Where the Light Fell, and it's Philip Yancey's autobiography. And it is, you know, he's a prolific Christian author, and we might not agree on every point of theology, but his story is really, I don't know, it's kind of heart-wrenching right now. I'm I'm in the middle of it. He's just gone to college. It, heart-wrenching, the way that he grew up and his family's grown up. So it's his journey— um, through discovering what he believes. is raised in a fundamentalist background. And so he's just wrestling with all kinds of things. I would recommend it. It is really fascinating. And it always, reading stories of other believers always builds up my faith. So I would encourage you, if you're not interested in the All-Star Game on Tuesday, to just put these in your little AirPods or Sony pods or whatever you have and listen to it. Well, that was a deeply affecting lunchroom which is the definition of poignant. No, poignant has a negative, poignant. negative Deeply connotation. affecting. Sadness. Is Miriam something about, Webster. No, don't go with Webster. It's something oh, okay. about sadness and... Yes. 
painfully affecting the feelings, piercing. Yes. yes. Well, that's definition I've, number one. Definition number two is deeply affecting. Evoking a keen sense of sadness or regret. I have always used. You've used it as a positive light. Exactly. I wasn't saying that your lunchroom was positive. Don't so make that mistake. I need to use that, that was touching not, is what I could use. Yeah, that, that wasn't, I wasn't saying what you just said was positive. Well, you're wrong. Oh, okay. <laughs> you're wrong. <laughs> well, listeners, we're glad that you joined us again for this episode of the ERLC podcast. Check your calendars. The date we are recording is 714, not next week. And so uh, hopefully you're not stuck in the time warp like Brent, but... Thanks for joining us on the podcast this week. And just to let you know, next week we're going to take off for a little break, but then we'll be back the following week with a little bit of a different format. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. And in addition to listening to the ERLC podcast, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and ethics. And if you like staying informed about important policy decisions that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill, which is hosted by our colleague, Chelsea Sobolit. Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.